You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing American converts to the Russian Orthodox Church. Why are Americans with no ethnic ties to Russia converting to Russian Orthodoxy? How do their views of American politics shape their religious lives? Why do these converts admire Vladimir Putin and Nicholas II, the last czar of Russia? And what does all of this mean for American politics and the war in Ukraine today? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Sarah Riccardi Swartz. She is the author of the new book, Between Heaven and Russia Religious Conversion and Political Apostasy in Appalachia. You can read an excerpt from her book in the upcoming April issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Sarah. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Brett. Of course. So as most of our listeners know, there have been people on the right for the past several years who sing Vladimir Putin's praises, and there are others on the right who have turned to Russia as a model for how they think American politics should look. And now you have this great book out about Americans who are going even further than praising Russia. They are converting to the Russian Orthodox Church in part because of their feelings about American culture and politics. So I'm really glad to have you here to help make sense of all of this, especially as we are in the midst of watching the violent Russian war against Ukraine. So to get us started and to set this up for everyone listening, you spent a year during the Trump administration living among American converts to the Russian Orthodox Church in West Virginia, in Appalachia country. And I'm sure that sentence alone raises lots of questions for our listeners, like why are Americans converting to the Russian Orthodox Church? And why would people in Appalachia who maybe have never been to Russia be drawn to Russian Orthodoxy? Uh, But before we delve directly into those questions, and I promise we will, to get us started, will you paint a picture for us of this Appalachian community of American converts to Russian Orthodoxy? What can you tell us about their general level of education and social class? Did they have Russian ancestry or ethnic Russian ties? Were they practicing Christians before converting to Russian Orthodoxy? If you could paint a picture for us so we can visualize and start to better understand this movement. Sure. I think it might be helpful for your listeners, Brett, to uh, situate these converts in Appalachia before I tell you about them as a community. So this community is in Woodford, which is a pseudonym. It's a town of approximately 1,200 people, and roughly 10% of that population uh, were converts to Russian Orthodoxy when I first visited there in the summer of 2015. Hmm. It's Located in a county where roughly 20% of the population live at or below the poverty line, in this town, the largest employers are Walmart and fast food restaurants. It's very remote. Mm -hmm. It's 40, 45 minutes from a mid-sized town. Mm -hmm. And the Orthodox community came there in part because someone offered them land in the early 2000s. So the, the community there is comprised of a men's monastery, of some 30 monks and a few lay people. So those are people who are not ordained or devoted to the religious life, but they're practitioners of orthodoxy. 
And uh, this monastery is located high up in the mountains east of the town, it's, so it's even more rural. At the time when I was there between 2017 and 2018, it was the largest English-speaking Russian Orthodox monastery in the world. Nearby, about, I would say, seven miles from the monastery was a parish of approximately 100 members. And the parish was built in part to help create a community for people who had moved to this area to be near the monastery in the early 2000s. Now, while I was there, all of the monastery members, all but one, I should say, and 90% of the parish were American converts to Russian Orthodoxy. And during the time I lived there from 2017 to 2018, the community itself increased by 10% because of people converting in. So locals, Hmm. people who lived in West Virginia, people also who lived in Ohio because the town was close to the Ohio border. Hmm. The immigrant population in this community, you were asking about, do they have Russian ancestry? Do they have ethnic Russian ties? Yeah. There were immigrants. They were less than 10% of the population of the community, the Orthodox community, and they were mostly Russian women who had married American men. Hmm. I should probably back up a bit and tell you why I went to Woodford. I think that's important. I had gone there after visiting a variety of Orthodox convert communities across the United States. I was looking at the time for a long-term research project And also for a film project, because I was getting a degree in documentary filmmaking at NYU. And I was really impressed with this community when I visited in 2015, because they had founded a digital icon studio to reproduce religious art digitally. So when I visited there in 2015, and I keep mentioning dates for a reason that I'll come back to um, later, that was my first encounter with the community. I then went back and I stayed in the summer of 2016. And then in the winter of 2017, I filmed my documentary with studio members and then finally moved there in September of 2017 to live for 12 months. And that was nine months after the inauguration of Donald Trump. Hmm. And that, that will be important as this story unfolds. Sure. I want to tell you that the community, you know, you asked about their education and yeah. what their economic status was like. And when I, when I say community, I'm referring both to the monastery and the parish. I, I think of them as one community and they think of themselves as one community. On the whole, they're very well educated. There's doctors, nurses, lawyers, um, intellectually minded people. Most have undergraduate college degrees, if not some sort of graduate level training. The community is predominantly Caucasian, predominantly male, and that's in part because the monastery is there and it's an all-men's monastery, but also because Orthodox ordination is limited to males. And men, by my experience, convert more often than women. Women generally convert because a male in their lives has converted, like their husband or their father. Um, In terms of class, they would self-identify, and they did, as middle class. And I would say that most of the Orthodox folks in Woodford lived well above the poverty line. In terms of social politics, there was a wide variety of political labels. So they would self-identify as far-right, alt-right, nationalist, Hmm. monarchist. So a a hodgepodge, right? But things that we might label as very Mm far-right. And in terms of their religious backgrounds... Most of them came from evangelical and Catholic backgrounds. And what I think is unique about this community, Brett, is that they combined their sort of religious affiliation, that of orthodoxy, 
with their far-right political ideologies sort of as a reaction to secularism. And in my book, I call them reactive Orthodox Christians. So there are a lot of converts to Orthodoxy in the United States. It's probably, I would say, a central aspect of contemporary Orthodox Christianity. But not all people who convert to Orthodoxy are reactive Orthodox Christians like this group. I'd like to stay with that then and ask more specifically about their ideas about politics and how it relates to their religious conversions. You say in the book that, quote, disappointment, disenchantment, and disillusion with American liberal politics drove people to convert to Russian orthodoxy. So could you tell us what were some of the things that disappointed them about American politics? And then why convert specifically to Russian orthodoxy? By that, I mean, why would disappointment with politics lead to religious conversion? And then why specifically Russian orthodoxy? Why not be Pentecostal or Mm -hmm. something with stronger roots in this country? So first, what disappointed them broadly about American politics? And then why would that lead them to convert to the Russian Orthodox Church? Yeah, I mean, actually, I think if we flip your question, it might make more sense to your listeners. Um, It's a really great question. Uh, Why not become evangelical or Pentecostal, right? Because those have very strong roots with both religion and politics in the United States. Most prior to converting were evangelicals. Mm -hmm. They wanted something that was historical, uh, historically Christian. And what I find really interesting, Brett, is that along the way in converting, most of these men, and, and remember I interviewed mostly men, They looked to Hinduism, they looked to Buddhism, they looked to um, Sufi Islam. Ultimately, they found, because they really wanted something mystical and Eastern, but Hmm. they at the same time wanted something Christian. And they Hmm. ultimately found that in Russian Orthodoxy, and specifically Russian Orthodoxy, because they saw it as able to withstand Soviet persecution and somehow experience a revival even after being dormant for much of the 20th century. They were also drawn to Russian Orthodoxy's unique political ties, both Hmm. in terms of, if you think before the Soviet Union, Russian Orthodoxy had a very unique relationship with a monarchy and the czar. And in Mm -hmm. the contemporary moment, it has a very unique post-Soviet relationship with Putin, as we're seeing unfold right now. Right. That's really what drew them to Russian Orthodoxy. And anything that smacked remotely of the West or modernity for them really couldn't be trusted. The abbot of the monastery told me very plainly that he said, America represents anti-Christianity and Russia now represents Christianity. Pentecostalism, right? Evangelicalism, even Mormonism. A lot, I have a lot of scholars ask me, well, why didn't they turn to Mormonism? Because it has a lot of the things that they're looking for. Those are all Western. Those are all modern for them. And they were off the table because even if they agreed with some of the conservative social politics that these institutions hold, they would not agree with their theology. Now, here's, you know, why were they disappointed in the United States? And why did they convert specifically to Russian Orthodoxy? And here's where I I really want to think about these dates. So if you recall, I go to West Virginia in 2017 to start my larger research project. That's nine months after Trump's inauguration. And some people in that community voted for him. It was a very small number, even though it, the media broadly painted Appalachia as, you know, Trump nation, right? Mm-hmm, MAGA mm-hmm. nation. Um, they were not thrilled with Trump. Most people told me I only voted for him because he, and this is a quote, he wasn't Hillary Clinton. And over and over, I heard that quote. They didn't really care about him. They were interested in seeing what type of foreign political projects 
might help the religious decline of the United States. Hmm. I started sitting down probably four to five months after I got there. I wasn't going to interview people right away. When I sat down with them, I asked, what does Russian Orthodoxy mean to you? The stories really unfolded. They talked, of course, about their love of Russian spirituality, how they were drawn by this beautiful religious art and chanting and incense and history, the liturgical life of the church. But they also saw Russian Orthodoxy as linked to a very distinct worldview and political system. Hmm. And that that somehow could help the trajectory of the U.S. where Christian values for them had come to an end under the hmm. Obama administration hmm. in many respects. And I, of course, in my book, I link that to like issues of whiteness and you know racial um, identifiers and things like that. But that was really important for them. They told me the Christian values of our nation went down the drain with Obama. So the converts you studied have great admiration for both Vladimir Putin and the last Tsar of Russia, Nicholas II. I want to ask you about both, but let me start with Nicholas II. So why do so many converts, entrenched as they might have been in American pro-democracy education, why do they romanticize and revere a monarch, Russia's last Tsar, Nicholas II? Yeah, I mean, it seems really odd, right, that somebody who lived 100 years before them and in a country so distant from their own and so different from their own Mm -hmm. uh, might be appealing, right? Here's a group of folks that not only decry liberal democracy as secular, right? They see it in terms of of the language we use about politics, um, secularity, but they also think of it as a, and this is their own words, a political hellscape. They firmly believed that secularism, and to them, secularism is expressed in things like feminism, abortion, LGBTQ plus rights. Mm -hmm. All of that is linked for them to an apocalyptic rise of an antichrist. And democracy, the diversity that democracy brings to us, right, that we, we in Western society often view as good and beneficial for amplifying the voices of people who have been marginalized, for them, it was not godly. It was hmm. the creation of humans, and it wrecked the, the divine ordering of the world. So monks, when they were talking to me in interviews, would often quote, quote a Russian saint, St. John of Kronstadt, He would say, in heaven there is a monarchy, and in hell there is a democracy. Wow. Yeah, right? I mean, that's like, that's really profound if you think Mm -hmm. about it. Um, (laughs) Like the the sort of theological and political tie there is just really strong. Monarchy for them was a way of God ordering society and a way of imbuing social structures with the moral values of Christianity as I argue in my book, the sort of divine sanctity of this heteronormative family from the top down. So let me give you an example. Even in Orthodox wedding ceremonies, husband and wives are crowned with actual metal crowns during the event. And this signifies two things, that they are the king and queen of their home, but also that they are martyrs to each other and that the crowns then represent the martyrs' crowns talked about in the Christian scriptures. So Tsar Nicholas is appealing for several reasons. First, he's a canonized saint in the church. He's believed to have been martyred for his faith by the Bolsheviks when he was assassinated with his family. And he's viewed as a family man who is focused more on his faith and his role as a husband and a father than as a politician. And so... He's primarily revered because of this institutional role as a czar, 
but you also have in him the image of the martyred king. Hmm. And their devotion to him makes sense if we think about the fact that Russian Orthodoxy, again, for much of the time prior to the Soviet Union, had a very unique political system in which the czar and the head of the Orthodox Church worked together cooperatively to create this sort of uh, religious empire, as it were. And Hmm. many of the people with whom I worked would gladly, I mean, they would gladly tell you to your face that they were monarchists. They had icons of Tsar Nicholas in their homes, and the monastery in Woodford had religious relics, uh, bone fragments from Tsar Nicholas. And they believed, I think this is the most important part of it, they believed that through Tsar Nicholas II's prayers in heaven now, that the world continues and that the Antichrist, again, which is linked to progressive secularism, is held back. So the role of a God-ordained political figure like Tsar Nicholas or even I, some would argue Putin is mm-hmm. key to this community understanding themselves in relationship to global politics. Fascinating. Okay, so then let's talk about Putin. Uh, both why some admire him, which you've just uh, started us now, but I'm also curious about his own relationship to religion. So first, what can you tell us about Vladimir Putin's religious life and if it has shaped his political actions in any way? And then second, beyond what you've said, is it that the converts that you've spent time with admire and love about Putin? Well, you know, I recently wrote an op-ed for Religion Dispatches with my colleague Rob Saylor, and we talked about how we don't know the ins and outs of Putin's personal Hmm. religious life. We can't, right? We can't know that sort of interiority for certain. But what we do know is that Putin seems to market himself as a devout Orthodox Christian, uh, someone who attends services, who regularly goes to confession, who has a spiritual father, uh, a very important thing in Russian Orthodoxy, who guides his decision-making processes. And he has a somewhat cozy public relationship with the patriarch. Mm-hmm. And certainly it seems as if Putin's emphasis on family values, of Orthodoxy is central to this sort of historical configuration of Rus, which he talked about in several of his speeches during this current war in Ukraine, And his explicit use of Patriarch Kirill to bless the troops, we saw that at the beginning of the war, Um, and then just, I think it was just this week or last week, to offer a religious icon of the Virgin Mary to the armed forces to help them win the war, are all ways in which Putin is utilizing religion as a central component of his political project. Hmm. It's clear to me that religion is important to him, I just don't know how he's using it. Now, why would American converts love him? for this, right? One young monk who was a convert from North Carolina told me, Putin is an echo of Tsar Martyr Nicholas. By and large, everyone would agree with that. They would say it in different ways in the community, Mm -hmm. but they saw Russian Orthodoxy and by extension, the Russian state and Putin as defenders of conservative morality in, and this is a quote from, from several people, in a world gone mad. And so they liken our current sort of political climate to that of right before the Bolshevik Revolution in Hmm. Russia. And so in terms of Putin, his promotion, maybe I should say his curation of Russia as a space, as as a sort of country wholly outside of Western values and ideas, is appealing to converts because they're terrified that what happened um, in Russia in 1917 will happen in the United States. 
and and they're they're done with the American Democratic project, including Trump. You know, as we saw like last summer with Tucker Carlson in in Hungary with Viktor Orban, they're looking abroad to king figures who might secure sort of a, a different political future for them. You know, one that not only supports their moral values and religious beliefs, but enforces them through policymaking, as you as you noted. And and for them, Putin is a guardian. He's a guardian of conservative family values. He has the potential perhaps to create a more authoritarian or monarchic governance, not just in Russia, which we're seeing right now sort of unfold this authoritarianism, but maybe in the US too. And let's be honest, in terms of media content, Putin does, at least he has until a month or so ago, uh, transnationally market a potential world in which conservative Christianity and politics not only flourish, but they aid each other. At the end of the day, the folks with whom I worked in Woodford didn't want to make America great again like Trump. They wanted to make it holy. Hmm. And Putin was up for that task for them. And they were willing to fight on his side. I mean, I remember sitting at a dining room table and a man telling me that he had an arsenal of weapons and he was ready to fight for Russia because Russia was on the right side. When I hear you say all this, part of what I think about with Putin is the way that he performs a certain type of masculinity. And in the book, you note that his explicit anti-LGBTQ platform and the restricting of LGBTQ rights in Russia was quite appealing to many of these converts. So could you say just a bit about why that has been a bit of a fixation for many of the converts? I mean, I'm assuming it has to do with seeing this as a further decay of what they would deem Christian values. But I'm also wondering if you can say a bit more about how this connects to ideas about masculinity and gender and sexuality that maybe we see in Putin and within Russian orthodoxy more broadly. We know, those of us who who live in the United States, know that there's a long history of conservative Christians seeing anything outside of the heteronormative family is sort of theologically impure and morally corrupt. We know that. And converts that I worked with, who I consider to be these reactive Orthodox Christians, certainly aligned with that type of moral framing. They had an intense fear and focus on trans rights specifically. You know, of course, we're seeing this right now in a lot of Christian-centric states in the U.S., right? Texas, Florida, Alabama, where LGBTQ plus rights and human rights more broadly, uh, women's rights, are under threat. Mm-hmm. And it's it's this reactive politics steeped in in the purity culture of, of white Christian power. And so that emphasis on purity, on separation, on the preservation of the self and the family and the nation, I think is why a lot of these believers converted to Russian orthodoxy and seemed to gravitate towards Russian politics. And that emphasis on purity and correct behavior is tied to their ideas about masculinity. Again, most of the converts I interviewed were men. And they would tell me exactly why they liked orthodoxy. Because it's physically difficult and it's often spiritually grueling. Hmm. There's long services. And when I say long, I'm talking about like four or five hours, like mm-hmm. a couple times a day <laughs> at the monastery. There's So there's hours of standing, prostrating, bowing, strict fasting calendars where for, you know, almost three-fourths of the year, half to three-fourths of the year, you're a vegan who has no alcohol or oil. 
intense, intense submission to your spiritual father. Let me back up and say submission so much so that you would have to ask permission to do very simple things like go on vacation or eat something, right? Very, very intense submission to one Hmm. spiritual father. And all of this creates a sort of militarized religious atmosphere. This is attractive for males who are looking to sort of amplify their spiritual commitment but also really focus in on that sort of patriarchal practice, right? You have to remember that this is a church that only ordains men. Mm -hmm. And so this patriarchal nature of the church is not only sort of acknowledged, but it's celebrated as this correct structure for religious authority. And so here's a group of people who already have a disposition towards a conservative framing of society, a pure framing of society, and they see Putin implementing that in Russia. And so why not look at him and say, hey, he's doing exactly what we want to do here. Let's follow him. So, you know, you mentioned at the start that this is just one community. It's not the only uh, American convert community in the United States. So having spent so much time among these converts to Russian Orthodoxy, what overall might you say their conversions and reverence for Russia should tell us broadly about America today? So much, Brett. But I will say that uh, I'll say that the the fears that they have, the fears over purity, right? Sexual, spiritual, racial, they are part of the conversations and beliefs of these reactive converts. But they're more than just words. They're giving a language to their sort of far right world building project, um, a project that draws on anti Semitism, homophobia, and racism to sort of create a new reality. Now, when I say that to people, they say new reality, that seems really drastic. Until we think about January 6th, Mm -hmm. and until we think about Russia's war right now in Ukraine, all of Mm -hmm. these are movements that use reactive language, reactive language of exclusion, of social partitioning, of moral purity. And I'm going to use a a fancy term and say, I think that this is ideological terraforming, which is a way of building a particular social world or reality from the ground up based on your values and ideas about what it should look like. Hmm. And we saw that almost happen with Trump and QAnon and the Capitol siege. And we see that in Putin's desire to wipe out Ukrainian sites of heritage Mm -hmm. and to sort of claim, or he thinks reclaim that, that broken Ukrainian soil and people as Russian rather than Ukrainian. And we see it in this panic over social values and fears and potential Christian persecution that have become part of conservative policymaking in the United States. And so these reactive Orthodox Christians, they may be like one group, but they're also building a new world through their radical reimagining of politics and religion. And I think one thing, I I hate to bring out statistics again, but I did a survey, Brett, with uh, conservative Orthodox women recently on Facebook. Hmm. And 32% of the respondents were either unsure about or they opposed the separation of church and state in the United States. They wanted a Christian nation to become a legal reality. And so the religious views that they have, the religious and political views that they have can tell us more about the state of far-right America right now than they do Russia. It tells us that the anger and the fear and the outrage that they have about diversity, about human rights, about difference, are not just fomenting, they're activated, and I fear perhaps even weaponized. Goodness. 
I, I, you know, I, I say it sort of now like my anxiety is raised, but it's helpful for us. So sorry. So sorry. (laughs) No, no, but we need to know. And it's, so it's very helpful for someone who's been studying this for years. Uh, We need to know what we're dealing with. And so it's very helpful to have you paint that very explicitly and clearly for us. So then for our last question, I'd like to ask you specifically about Russia's invasion of and war with Ukraine. How are American converts to the Russian Orthodox Church responding to Russia's invasion? And also, as someone who has been studying Russian religion and politics for several years, what is something you'd like more people to understand about the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Well, the, the responses are interesting. They're varied. And I see this in real time because I'm already working on my next project, which is about tracking um, far-right Orthodox social media accounts uh, very popular accounts, and um, this rise of digital racism. And at first, these reactions were widespread support for Putin when they thought he was just going to be in the Donbass region. Hmm. But then as things begin to change sort of daily and even hourly, right, as we're all in this sort of 24-hour media cycle, mm-hmm. their views were really in flux, and they're still in flux. They're trying to grapple with the fact that they support Putin But they also don't understand why he, and I think this is also interesting, they think that Ukraine is a a orthodox country. So they don't understand why one orthodox country is fighting Uh. another orthodox country, right? They don't see the religious diversity and plurality that's happening in Ukraine. But it also doesn't help that, you know, the Moscow Patriarchate uh, openly supports Putin. And in the United States, the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, which is what uh, the organization that most of these converts belong to, hasn't decried Putin's actions. And in fact, they've told adherents to turn off Western media and news because it's not trustworthy. It's bad for their spiritual health, right? So the church seems to be calling for this information blackout based in theology, even as Putin is sort of culling the information networks in Russia. So I I think it's going to remain in flux how they view view this war, but it's certainly it's certainly clear that they think in many respects that Ukraine had it coming because they're a secular uh, Western nation. The one thing I will say about this invasion that I want people to know, because I see this so much in op-eds and right reporters, this is not mm-hmm. a holy war. It is not a holy war. Putin's war has historically religious geopolitical dimensions that he's combining with conspiracy theories but it is in no way a holy war this is what i would see as an an excellent example a a weaponized expression of ideological terraforming in action well thank you for that and thank you for this fascinating conversation and the important work that you are doing that is all the time we have for today i'd like to thank our guest dr sarah riccardi swartz you can read an excerpt from her book between heaven and russia religious conversion and political apostasy in appalachia in the revealer's upcoming april issue at therevealer.org and you can purchase between heaven and russia online now i'm brett crutch i hope you'll join us for our next episode next month we'll be discussing Black Buddhists, and connections between racial justice activism and Black bodily affirmation within Black Buddhist communities. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.